I am sure you're like me. You're like most Americans. You like you like being on the inside circle, don't you? You like uh, you like it when you know what's going on in that meeting with all the bigwigs. Just wish you could have the inside scoop, don't you? You may be like me. There's even like a TV show. Maybe you've watched it. Don't tell me if you have because I'll judge you. But there's a TV show called Inside Edition. Comes on usually around the time Jeopardy or Wheel of Fortune comes on. I just know that because I read about it. I've never watched the show. I would not be a pagan like that. But there is a show called Inside Edition. You know what that show's all about? It's about getting the inside scoop of what's going on in the, indus- the entertainment industry. There's also another show that I really haven't paid much attention to, but I know it's out there. TMZ. TMZ. It's a show about people, paparazzi going around trying to get the inside scoop into celebrities. The life of celebrities. And you know what also happens typically in the political world? You probably know it from the 1970s, right? Richard Nixon was recording stuff in the Oval Office, and then that didn't go well. And at some point, they tried to pull all the tapes, and then there was this section of the tape missing. But it it would allow us to get the inside scoop of what was going on in the Oval Office. Or even recently, there have been these moments where presidents have a hot mic somewhere around them, and they get caught on tape. And you, you know why we love that? Because we love the idea of knowing what was going on when no one else was listening. We could be on the inside, get the inside scoop, be on the inner circle. You love being on the inner circle. You remember being, maybe when you were in middle school, you loved the idea of being on the inside crowd. The crowd that knew what was going on. Well, I have this, personally, I have this same feeling when I go into the Scriptures. Particularly this meeting Jesus had with His disciples. There was this moment when Jesus met with His disciples after He came back to life. And He explained to them some things about the Old Testament that I really wish I could have uh, heard. I wonder, you're probably wondering, when am I going to drink my coffee? Give me a second, please. Yeah, well, i got to get through this. All right. All right. So let's take a look. I want you to look at this passage that really gets me. This is the thing that makes me want to be on the inside. I want the inside scoop on this passage right here. Luke 24, 25-27, he said to them, this is Jesus, on the road to Emmaus. He's talking to two disciples who are wondering what in the world just happened to this Jesus of Nazareth. Well, Jesus has come alongside them. And he's about to explain to them things, although they don't know that he is Jesus. He says this, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I wish I knew what was going on in that meeting. Like, what were the Scriptures? What were the passages in Genesis and Exodus? What, what verses was he flipping to when he talked about Joshua and Judges? What Psalms was he teaching them? What passages in Isaiah were the ones that were coming to light? I wish I would have been part of that meeting. I want the inside scoop on that That would make it a lot easier to know what parts of the Old Testament I should be teaching 
or preaching? Which ones are really pointing to Jesus? I want the inside scoop on this passage. Now, lucky for us, when the early Christians started telling the story of Jesus, we get a glimpse, I think, into some of the scriptures Jesus was teaching them in that meeting. I think we can at least get a bit on the inside of that meeting on the road to Emmaus and then the subsequent meetings that Jesus would have with his disciples. What are the scriptures that Jesus was teaching them? Well, we get a glimpse in the next part of the sermon when Peter continues to tell the story of Jesus in Acts chapter 2. So that's what we'll pick up. We'll pick up with some of the verses previous uh, that we already looked at in the last couple weeks to give us context, and then we'll jump into that new section of the sermon. So here we go. Acts chapter 2. 23 through 33. And this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, now I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and in his tomb, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. And seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. There's a glimpse, I think, into that meeting on the road to Emmaus. I think it's a glimpse into the inside of that conversation. I think this psalm may have been one one of the passages Jesus brings up when he explains to them all the scriptures that point to himself. Psalm 16. But before we dig Psalm 16, I want to pull back, I want to zoom out, and I want us to understand how important it is that the disciples, Peter in this case, has grabbed an Old Testament scripture and brought it forward to explain the resurrection of Jesus. That is something we shouldn't miss. So, what is happening there as Peter grabs Psalm 16 is the bigger story. So, take a look at the screen. Here's the way I want to summarize it. For those that are listening only, I just poured coffee into a mug. You all know that, but they don't. Here we are. Peter sees Jesus' resurrection not as a disconnect from Israel's story. Rather, it's central to God's plan for his people in the world. Very important. What we see here is that Peter understands that the story of Israel, the story of his people, the story of God choosing a nation to bring blessing into the world, all of it will come to center on Jesus. That means that the resurrection of Jesus isn't just something disconnected, not some anomaly. 
It actually is the thing that God had been promising from the beginning. It is the culmination of the story. It's the thing that fills the story out. It's the frame of the narrative that will now move blessing into the world. Jesus at the center. So when he looks back on the story of his own people, he now sees Jesus. And for the Jews, they would have seen resurrection. It's not like resurrection was something on the outskirts of Israel's story. Israel, for a long time, had heard the promises of the prophets that God one day would bring His people back. He would vindicate His people. And that He would resurrect them, literally bring them back to life. And they hoped for something like that. You see, when Ezekiel wrote that great prophecy about dry bones in a valley coming back to life, uh, the, the Jews would heard that promise and looked forward to the day when they would be brought back from exile and one day be literally brought back to life. Look at how Ezekiel writes the promise. Ezekiel 37, 1, and then we'll just look at verses 1, uh, 11 through 13. The hand of the Lord was on me, and He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and He set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. Now, what happens between verse 1 and verse 11, but just imagine a valley full of bones. And as the vision goes on, we get to verse 11 where he says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones of the people of Israel, they say our bones are dried up, our hope is gone, we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I'll bring you back to the land of Israel, and then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I, the Sovereign Lord, one day will open your graves and you will come back to life. And the Jews held on to this. So the idea of resurrection wasn't anything new for the Jews. Also reminds me of Daniel 12. Daniel 12, 1 through 12, uh, 1 through 2. And at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will rise. There'll be a time of distress such as not has happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found in the book, you know what's going to happen? They're going to be delivered. Not just delivered, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. There will be a day when God will bring resurrection. His people will be vindicated and God will be sovereign over the nations. And then to wrap that whole, all those prophecies up, Isaiah does it better than any. He gives a vision of a new creation. Isaiah 66, 22-23, As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make will endure before me declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another. All mankind will come and bow before me, says the Lord. There will be a day when graves are opened and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and all will be made right. The Jews had these prophecies inside their story. They look forward to the day when all will be made right, all restored Everything resurrected. Everything made new. It was part of the narrative. Part of their hope. But what they couldn't see is that God would launch. God would launch the new creation. 
Not on the day of the Lord when everything comes to an end. God would launch the new creation when the Messiah, who had suffered and died, was brought back to life. When the Messiah's grave was opened, it launched into the world the new creation. You see, the promise of resurrection wasn't something way out in the future. It would happen with their coming king. It would come with the anointed one. It would happen to the holy one. That's what's happening here. And so when Peter looks back into the Old Testament, he looks at a scripture like Psalm 16 and he says, there's a prophet. David, he calls a prophet. There was a prophet who actually predicted that new creation, resurrection, all the promises of Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah, they all would start with the anointed one. They would start with the holy one. And so he looks back on this psalm, Psalm 16, and he sees Jesus all over the psalm. But for the rest of the Jews, that would be a very hard thing to see. So let's put up this next slide. I want you to remember exactly uh, what, let's go two more, two more, uh, now one more. Uh, yep, sorry. One more. There it is. Here's what, here's what uh, Peter is seeing when he looks at Psalm 16. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Here, David writes, it seems, of himself. But for the Jews at that time, this would not have been a scripture about the Messiah. It would have been a scripture about David. David died decayed. And most Jewish scholars at the time would have believed this is a prayer, a poetic prayer, that God would rescue him or keep him from premature death. We're going to go to the next slide, John. Here's what one scholar says. Many scholars argue that the original psalm had in mind only a premature death, which is quite possible given the term corruption, decay, is used and death uh, is used and how death was seen at the time the psalm was written. So for most Jews, they're looking here and they're saying, ah, David is praying that he wouldn't die early. Because there's no way David would be praying that he wouldn't die and his body wouldn't be decayed. Because David did die, it did decay, and we see his tomb right here among us. No way. But what Peter knew, that the Jews did not, was that all over the Old Testament, these scriptures were about Jesus. I wonder, as Peter reread his Old Testament, in light of the resurrected Jesus, he was remembering things that even Jesus said. So, John, we're going to go back to the John 5 passage now. As you can see, I rearranged the sermon in my head without telling you. Here it is, John 5, 39 through 40. Jesus himself said this to the Pharisees, You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Well, these are the very Scriptures that testified about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I wonder if that teaching of Jesus was reactivated. I wonder if Jesus brought it forward when he met with his disciples in these closed room gatherings teaching them that these scriptures that you thought were about one thing, they actually pointed to me. I am the center of your story. Things like this, I think, were rekindled in the imagination of the early disciples. So when they came to Psalm 16 and read David saying things like, I know that my Lord will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. He will not let His Holy One see decay. 
And they looked at that, and rather than being a prayer against premature death, I'm so sorry. It's hard to preach when your wrist is vibrating. We're back. I'll take a swig of coffee. It's probably was a divine appointment. I wonder then if what they're, what they're experiencing is the reality that their Messiah, the Jesus they knew they walked with, was at the center. You know, years later, Peter will reflect, will reflect on, his, on all that he has taught. He will reflect on the Hebrew Bible, these Old Testament Scriptures, these Scriptures he's taught the people over and over again. He'll reflect on all of them and he'll come to this conclusion, the same one Jesus had, the same one he's going to deal with right here in Acts 2. Look at what he says about how Jesus sits at the center. 1 Peter 1, 10-12, concerning the salvation, Peter writes. This is the same Peter preaching in Acts 2. He's writing this years later. The salvation of the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. They, well, these prophets, they searched intently and with the greatest care, and they were trying to find out the time and circumstances which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when He predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. You see, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Jesus is all over the Old Testament. Jesus was the center of Israel's story. The resurrection was the fulfillment of the promise that God would make good on His vindication. God would make good on the new creation. God would make good on bringing His people back to life. All of it launched through the Messiah. So when Peter looks back into Psalm 16... Probably a passage Jesus taught them on the road to Emmaus. Probably part of the inside conversations they were having. He doesn't see David praying for himself. Peter sees something else in light of the resurrected Jesus because Jesus reframes the story. Here's what I think is happening. Take a look. Here's how I want to summarize it. Peter explains that David wasn't writing about himself. But David's writing about his offspring a king from his family line who would be the Holy One who would not see decay. And Peter says, therefore, he was talking about Jesus. When David writes that he would not see decay, that he would not be abandoned to the realm of the dead, David is actually writing about his offspring. He's writing about the coming king, the king who would sit on his throne to reign forever and ever. And so when Peter picks up his Hebrew Bible and begins to read in the light of the resurrected Jesus, the Messiah is popping on every page. All those promises, all those promises that are infused into the Hebrew Bible from Genesis to Malachi, all the promises, they all are becoming yes in Jesus. Jesus is the sinner of of the story. It's a theme we've already talked about for the last four weeks. Jesus at the center. We even sang a song, didn't we? Jesus at the center. And so what happens is everything begins to be rekindled. It's reunited in the mind of Peter and all the early disciples. The Old Testament now becomes extremely relevant because it all has to do with the risen Jesus. Because He is risen, it means you can claim the promises to the people of God. They are now your promises through Christ. 
If you don't mind, I just stole some things from the Apostle Paul. I'll just show you what I just did. I just plagiarized. I might as well tell you about it. 2 Corinthians 1, here's what Paul actually says. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Ah, the Jews were looking forward to a resurrection. They just didn't know it was coming through the Messiah. Ah, David had the hope. That he would not be abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor his body see decay. But that hope would be found in the Messiah. I hope you see Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So when you open your Bible to Genesis 1-1, Jesus sits at the center. It all will point to Jesus. There's one, one group of Christians that I'm a big fan of, and they talk about the Bible as a unified story that leads Jesus. Ah, now this has got some application for us, but you're going to have to come with me on the journey. I'm going to do a bit. Uh, I'm going to do a bit of a backflip, front flip. I don't know, triple lutz. I don't know something. Something that's something that's going to move us a little bit uh, uh, different than you might expect. So here we go. It might have something to do with my mug. Here it is. I want to draw us to a big application. Big, big picture. Go big with me. I want you to zoom out. Go 30,000 feet. The Old Testament, I think, the Old Testament points to Jesus. And when we share in His resurrected life, we share in all the promises written there. That's big picture. That's big picture. So that means that your Old Testament, that means the Hebrew Bible is extremely relevant for you in 2021. It's not some archaic piece of literature that was written way back when by some barbaric people that killed others. No. It's a book full of the narrative of God's people that drive us to the Holy One, the One whose body did not see decay, the One risen, the One alive today, the One that will help you when you go home this afternoon. The one that will help you act appropriately as you watch the Super Bowl. The one who is alive right now. That one. Okay. So, of all the promises, what do we do about that? So, we've just really made a pretty big application. Well, I think we could probably get through 300 of those promises in the next 15 minutes. So, here we go. Number one. No, I'm just joking. thought that would be funnier. We'll cut that from the next time I do something like this. We won't use that joke. Alright, here we go. I want to grab one. I want to grab one promise. I want to grab one scripture. Now, I understand you're going to know this scripture. I know you know it and I know you've heard it. But this scripture has very little meaning. Little meaning if Jesus didn't come back to life. But in the light of the resurrection, it pops. It comes to life. It has meaning for your life where you are in 2021. Psalm 23. Psalm 23, I think, is the, is the passage. So if you don't mind, just let me just, just speak that psalm over you. And anyone watching at home, there David writes, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And, and he, will, he will lead me beside quiet waters. And He will refresh my soul. He makes, me, he, he makes me go in righteous ways. That is passive righteousness, if you've memorized it that way. And all of it's for His namesake. And although I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff will they comfort me. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Ah, and my cup? My cup? It overflows. It overflows. I don't have enough coffee for it to overflow, but you get it. It overflows. Surely your goodness and your love, well, they were going to follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Wow. What a song. If you don't have a risen Jesus, you don't have the promise of dwelling with the Lord forever and ever. You just don't. David did not dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David died. He was buried. And his body decayed. He did not dwell in the temple forever and ever. It took another king coming to suffer and die. And then be brought back to life so that the temple now resides in himself. If you want the presence of the Lord, you come to that one. You come to that king and you get all the promises thrown in. Interestingly, Jesus, I think, understood all of this. Jesus came so that your cup would overflow. So the goodness and love would follow you. Jesus, the good shepherd. And when Jesus read his Hebrew Bible, a Bible he himself inspired, he sees himself all over it. Even something like Psalm 23. Interesting that Jesus would say this. John 10, 10-11. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And I have come that you may have life and that you may have it to the full. Sounds like a cup overflowing. Interesting. Next words out of Jesus' mouth are, I am the good shepherd. I think Jesus was calling us, hyperlinking back to Psalm 23. You see, the application is twofold here. I really want to say something about the way you read the Old Testament. Literally. If you're like most Christians, and even if you're on the outskirts of this Jesus thing, you may look at the Old Testament and say, what does it have to do with anything? Well, I think part of what we see in this section of Acts chapter 2, where Peter is telling us, the first, for the first time, the story of Jesus, I think he's teaching us something about how to understand the Old Testament. But I think the, the application also gets down to the actual promises we have in Jesus. You actually can have the kind of life where goodness and love are following you. You actually can dwell with Jesus in your kitchen today. You actually can become the kind of person who will not fear death. You actually become the kind of person who seems to be calm in the middle of a storm, whose soul is refreshed even when you are diagnosed with cancer or heart disease or suddenly lose a child. You can become the kind of person with a refreshed soul. All of it's possible because Jesus is alive and His Spirit is infusing His people. You get to partake of the resurrected life. And when you get His resurrected life, you get Psalm 23 thrown in. So let me try one more thing. Let's try to make it really practical this week. Here it is. Here's the next step you can take this week. You may have already taken it. I've tried to take this next step, the whole sermon. And if I would have known how difficult it is to drink coffee while preaching, I might have thought differently. 
Next step. Every time you hold a cup, remember Jesus is risen and His abundant life is available now. You see what I'm doing here? I'm trying to drive us to a next step this week that puts in front of you the real-life application of what's happening in Acts chapter 2. This week, as you hold a cup, remember that Psalm 23 is a promise for you on that day, at that moment. A promise that your head would be anointed with oil, but even more, your cup would overflow. You see, when you hold a cup, I want you to remember this week that literally because Jesus is risen, you can have an abundant life. An abundant life to the full. A life that is overflowing. I don't know what's going to happen this week. You understand here in our town, we have a lot of decisions that are going to be made. Particularly by our school board. If you have any connection to our school system, a lot's going to happen. I'm sure some decision's going to be made. Ah, no matter what happens, we will be people who show life overflowing. We will not be people who complain or cheer. I don't care which side of the aisle you're on. You will say a decision has been made. And my cup overflows. You'll be a a happy people. A people full of joy. In four years, in 2024, when we run through another gauntlet of presidential candidates, we will not be people claiming the world is about to end. Or the country's falling apart. Or the Savior has arrived. I don't know which side you go on that. Depends on who's running, I guess. We will be people whose soul is refreshed. People whose life is overflowing. We will be a people whose cup overflows. Because Jesus is risen. You know that this applies if you live here, live in Seattle, or live in South Africa. You can claim Psalm 23. So this week, make it real. When you hold your cup, remember you have the promise of a life that overflows because Jesus is risen. Those are the two things you were remembering. You're remembering your life can overflow and you remember Jesus is alive. I've been trying to do it this whole sermon. Now why in the world would I have brought this one? I just want you to see Tessa's mug. That's it. Nothing profound. She's got a Wonder Woman mug. She gets more coffee than I do. And even as you hold Wonder Woman, you remember. You remember. Tess, you remember. That your life can overflow. And that Jesus is risen. This, good reminder, I think. I hope it helps you. Don't judge Tess. Don't judge Tess. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for writing a story starting with Genesis chapter 1. A story that would lead us to Jesus. And thank you that Jesus is alive right now. Thank you that his life now pours into our life. That no matter a diagnosis, no matter a school board decision, no matter an accident in the road, no matter a death, we can be the kind of people who walk beside quiet waters, whose souls are refreshed, of people who do not fear, of people whose cup overflows. So as we hold cups this week, 
May we remember that you were writing a story all the way from the beginning that would lead to your son. May we also remember that your son is alive right now with us. And may we remember that like the cup we hold, our life can overflow. That is a promise we claim. It is yes in Christ. We claim every other promise in the Old Testament. But this morning we just focus on one. All of it because Jesus came back to life and reversed death. And we will partake in life evermore today and forever and ever. What a hope. We thank you for that. We pray it in the name of our risen King Jesus. And together we say,